If the teacher identifies himself or herself as the vehicle of learning and the vehicle of education, then you can see very easily how when, when the teacher's ego starts being fed, this seems like learning is being fed, right? Education is, is flourishing. I think that's one of the biggest dangers of, of the teacher becoming central right. to the process. The way we describe the harmony between a student's individual choices and societal expectations is we say, oh, that's a good student. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, but that so many of us, I, I have done this within the last year. I say, oh, such a good student. And all I'm really saying there is, is that there's not, there's not too much tension. Uh, there's, <laughs> right. I don't have to do too much work. Welcome to the Unexamined Education. My name is Jonathan Ali, and as always, I'm joined by my friend Sean Dalrymple. In our conversations, we draw upon our experience as educators to gain insight into the essence of teaching and learning. We hope that our discussions inspire and benefit you, whether you are a teacher, administrator, student, parent, or anyone else that understands the importance of education in the life of the human being. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, John. In the last two episodes, we've been talking about the different forces at work in education, and we talked about the importance of the genuine interest of the student and the ability of the student to determine for himself or herself the path of learning that, that he's on. And we also talked about external factors, like the legitimate concerns of the group, parents, family, society, etc., and how those influence the education system and the path of the child. So today we want to focus on the teacher. We thought that a good way to start this would be to talk about different teacher personas. And I think anyone who's had the experience of teaching in the classroom, if with a little reflection, they can start identifying and, and recognizing these personas. So I wanted to start by asking you, Sean, when you first started teaching, what persona did you find yourself taking on? So we, we have a list here, and the one I think that is most most accurately describes my first couple of years teaching, Yeah. although it wasn't a full-time persona, was the performer slash clown okay. uh, persona, which is to say that I was bringing a lot of energy. I was trying to make sure that the students had kind of a show yeah. to watch anytime they came in class and I was presenting something. Right. It always had to be in terms of like a show. Did you like, do any break show dancing? Today? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was careful not to go too clownish. I, I kind of think of it as clownish just because it was so over the top. Right. It was trying to uh, subdue the students with my high energy. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't exactly, like, work. Uh, in fact, what I would say is what I should have realized from the very first day was that I might have been able to control them with high energy, but it was by no means subduing the students. And I'm not sure that was the right thinking at all. But yeah, what happened on my first day, and this is like my very first day of teaching my own class, very first period. And the students, to add to it, is the students were 10th graders. And at the school we taught, 10th grade was the first grade of high school. It was their first class in high school. Yeah. And, you know, they came in and I'm a young teacher, so I hear them commenting on that, but they don't know what to expect. And right. I'm like dressed professionally. But once it's time to start class... I go at them and I tell them everything about literature that's important, and I, I try to get them really excited. I'm, I'm like, "Do you think you understand stories? Let me tell you something." <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I, I probably have the notes somewhere of the things right. I was saying, but uh, it certainly would have had something to do with like better understanding the human condition 
except presented in a really uh, over the top way. Right. Like and how would you what would you compare it to like a like a motivational speaker type presentation or Yeah, it probably was like that except yeah, it was, I would say it was motivational speaker kind of thing. I wasn't yeah. really saying anything meaningful about literature if yeah. I recall. I think I was mainly assuming that they had had the wrong kind of instruction up to this point. <laughs> right. And I, I did some commentary on probably how they had things all wrong. Okay. And were, you, were you trying to be provocative? I was mainly trying to be funny. Yeah, yeah. So so the, the provocative was certainly there, <laughs> but... <laughs> Honestly, I don't think I had enough experience to be really provocative right. because I didn't have enough reflection on, on what it's like to teach literature. But I was definitely trying to be funny. Yeah. And I was counting on most of the students having had boring English classes hmm. prior to my class. Yeah. And that assumption, I don't know if it was correct or not. Right. Uh, but but it seemed to be working. But in fact, it seemed to be working so well that two girls who I still remember their personalities in such details yeah. in such detail because they became like such a presence in class they looked at each other at some point and they gave each other a high five in the middle of my speech <laughs> yeah <laughs> at that point i should have started to dial things back because what they saw as what i saw as inspirational they saw as complete license to do whatever whatever right. they needed to do Right, right. Yeah, which is interesting. And that's a good reaction, right, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it taps into maybe some fears that a teacher has, <laughs> right? Some worries right. that a teacher <laughs> right. has about how things are going to go. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that, that your strategy with this approach was to, what, uh, you said subdue them, but I think, do you mean to be in control of, right. of the classroom? Right. To be in total control by high energy. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I brought out was a very high energy in the students. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kept having to raise the level of energy <laughs> to, <laughs> right. to control the class. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and you know, that's what the, the classroom management stuff, you know, it's always... They always want to tell you about how to control the classroom. Right. You know, and they always want to tell you to do it in low energy ways. This is not the fault of any <laughs> classroom management training I had. Right. But there's such a focus in teacher training on teacher controlling the classroom dynamic, uh, right. which which I get. But also I think that was like that overtook my mind. And I, I didn't I wasn't grounded in any sort of like belief about what I should be doing there right. as a teacher. Right. You know, I would say that in teacher training, the impression the impression that I got was like you said, there, there's not an emphasis to expend a lot of energy, right? Of course, because there's an understanding that that's going to wear you out and it's, it's difficult to right. sustain that. But I think from popular right. culture, that's where people get more of the idea that a teacher needs to be this, this dynamo, right, in front of the right. classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and you know a performer and and that's the kind of teacher that's celebrated by in, in movies also students understandably enjoy having that that kind of teacher and well and it's it's ironic too because i would say that i have a clear memory of hating almost every single example of that kind of teacher <laughs> but i was well on my way to being that kind of teacher <laughs> day right. one right so what about you what was your first well uh, persona yeah. so when I got my first teaching job with my own classroom, I think I saw myself as a hero going into a situation of chaos that was out of control, and I was going to slay the dragon of student 
disorder and chaos. Because like we talked about before, my first teaching job was to come in and replace a teacher who had resigned. And he resigned during Thanksgiving break, I guess. He just, he didn't come back from Thanksgiving break. And then these classes, they didn't have a teacher for several weeks. And, and he, he, re- he resigned publicly shaming <laughs> the, the right. students and almost like publicly shaming the institution for even trying to help these students. <laughs> really, yeah. And which, yeah, now that you mentioned that, I, I remember there was this sort of perception that these students are the ones that got rid of him. <laughs> right. right. And so, so these are the students that were so bad that they made a, a, you know, a teacher quit and not come back. And, and I remember once and I he started— was a, he yeah. was a veteran teacher, too. It's also worth <laughs> right. pointing out. He was a veteran teacher. Right. So it's not like this was his first year and he got you know blown away by these students. No, this is a, a guy who knew what to expect in the classroom. Right, <laughs> right. And I think I was also, once I started working with these students, I also came to understand that they saw themselves as the, the classes that were so bad, they make teachers quit. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and when I was preparing to come into the class and I, or preparing to start, I went to the school a couple of times and met with the, the head of the English department, and she explained to me what was going on. We talked about what how I should approach the curriculum. And then I, also one thing is that ended up happening is, is we decided that I should just focus on preparing them for the standardized test. Right. So, yeah, (laughs) which was another huge disadvantage, which at that point was seen somehow as like a good idea. Right. Uh, And I also I was told that at at some point when with one of the various substitutes that they had, uh, one of the kids set a fire in the classroom, like a small fire, granted. (laughs) But just the fact that a a fire is being lit in the classroom is alarming enough. Right. So I thought, you know, of myself as this hero teacher who's supposed to come in and restore order in the classroom for the sake of the students, right? Like I I felt that, you know, it's not fair that things have devolved to this point and they can't be learning if the conditions are like this. And so I relied on a book that was introduced to me in teacher training as being the Bible of teaching. Yes. It was a type of book that was well known. It's famous still to this day. I think it's it's well known amongst teachers and and sort of revered. But I think in the early two thousands, that was when it was really in its its heyday. There, right? Yeah, it was very. It was really popular. the The book has a nice tone to it, which is like this: you're going to enjoy being a teacher. Teaching is going to be rewarding for you. It's fun to work with uh, with kids. But the approach that it recommended was that you know the main element, the main thing that the teacher needs to do to create a good classroom environment is have very clear rules, very clear consequences, and to consistently implement those rules and consequences. So this, going into this situation, this was the main tool that I had in my mind. And and why I compare myself to, why I say my persona was that of a hero is because I guess you could say that this was my sword that I was going to use to slay this dragon, you know. (laughs) The students that you're supposed to help. (laughs) Right. Well, slay, you know, that bad part of them. Right, right. Which wanted to set fires in the classroom and and get rid of teachers yes and reform them so that they become you know the the uh, obedient students who are there wanting you know to to learn <laughs> right yeah <laughs> And uh, so this is how I started. And I, you know, I'm the type of, you know, my personality is, is I, I guess I could, I would usually describe myself as task oriented. So if my task is to implement rules and consequences and to do it consistently, then that's what I'll, I'll do, right? I can become very focused on that. And on the other hand, if I see my task as developing positive relationships with the students and giving them freedom to become inspired themselves about learning, then, then it's something that I can get on board with, you know, and, and really become committed to. But in this case, I was committed to the wrong thing, which was to 
to impose order. And what I what I mean by wrong is that not that that's wrong essentially, but but wrong meaning the result that it was going to lead to was some damage that would take a long time to repair, which was that I gained a reputation as being a teacher that students didn't like. Right. That they didn't like being in my class, that uh, they resented being in my class. They wished they were in <laughs> someone else's well, class. And, and if I recall, the book prepares you for that. And but the book's advice is like, stay with it. You know, <laughs> it will. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> they'll come it, around. Yeah. And you stuck yeah, it's, with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no coming around happened. <laughs> right. It's that school of thinking that that's like this, that like this is what kids need. Right. And although they'll although they'll react negatively to it, eventually they'll appreciate you for it. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and so I believed that. And I was like, okay, that's, I was prepared for the pain. But and, it reached some a point people where can, I, Some people can do yeah. that. <laughs> like, let's be right. fair. But, uh, but yeah, I think that this starts to point to to one of the the biggest issues with uh, teachers feeling like they all have to pick some strategy and stick with it because it's successful. It's been proven uh, and it just doesn't fit your personality. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really good point because that's one thing I realized is that this persona doesn't work for me as a teacher because who you are as a teacher and how you conduct yourself in class is has much more to do with just some, it's not a, a matter of some standard or or strategy that's independent of the particular circumstances in the classroom. All the factors, the environment of the school, the students and what they They've dealt with up until that point. You're the teacher's personality, like whether you are a naturally reserved person or you're, you know, a high energy person or you're outgoing or or not. These things matter. And and when you present yourself in a certain way, I think one of the things that I learned here is if it's inauthentic, the students pick up on that and they don't like that. Right. Yeah. Right. They don't they don't like inauthenticity. And it's just normal. All human beings in general don't don't like that. And they they sniff it out. <laughs> you know, pretty easily. And especially as a teacher, you're sp- you need to be someone that they can trust, that they, you know, they feel connected to, that they like. And uh, so that was probably the hard lesson that I learned as a, as a beginning teacher was that I needed to find a way to be a teacher and do what I needed to do, fulfill my role, but also to be myself at the same time. And there's no secret to that. There's no secret for a teacher coming into it to, to be able to get all that together on the first right. go round because right. the the dynamic that you're faced with with a group of students is I think it reveals a lot more about yourself than right. the students <laughs> certainly the first like year or two right uh, I'll assert that as a truth I mean if you're sitting there reflecting on on what is happening in the classroom, then mainly what you're going to learn about is yourself. Right. Because if, if you focus on the students or, you know, these other things, then that's just going to lead to frustration and it doesn't lead to a solution. Uh, or it can take you further down a road of becoming more authoritarian or more right. j- more cynical about students in general, you know, that they don't want to learn, they're lazy, they're going to right. misbehave. Yeah, there's certain inauthentic personas that the students will accept. And those personas are the jaded teacher who's not really a jaded person. But right. when going to class, that's you know, that's who they present. And the students are, they can handle that. Right. You know, the yeah. students, they're like, okay, it's another teacher beat down. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, so, so we'll just deal with this teacher. So uh, I think it's interesting because our list, this just now occurs to me, our list is about personas that people seem to actively adopt in order to gain credibility 
with the students. Right. But it just occurred to me now that there's another list of personas that teachers adopt over time, maybe unintentionally, maybe never went into teach teaching thinking they would adopt uh, the, the the beaten down right <laughs> persona. But those are those are ways that you can manage and, and get through and give the students something that they will accept. And I think they would have accepted like your author- authoritarian model, but you have to work so hard at it if it's not natural to you. Right, right. That I think you were you were doomed from the get-go on that. Right. And another element I think is important for the that model is you have to be you have to have all the other skills taken care of. You have to be an expert in the other things. Right. Like if you have a lot of other things working against you, then it becomes impossible. For instance, being new at a school. Right. Like the the students knew more about the school than I did. They knew more about, you know, <laughs> like all the procedures of the school. They knew more about the schedule, about the policies, you know, and how they were enforced or not enforced. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always unfortunate when, when, when yeah. they can tell you things about how the school should work. Right, and, right. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. They knew who, the names of the assistant principals, <laughs> right. which I didn't. <laughs> You're not even sending me to the right assistant principal. <laughs> right. Man. <laughs> Yeah, and it was it was pretty alarming, you know. Like uh, I would have a an antagonistic relationship with with one of these students because I'm trying to get them in line, and I thought, you know, this is the way to do it. But then I would see them interacting with the assistant principal that I was sending them out of class, giving them office referrals to go talk to that principal, and I would see them laughing and joking and having a good time <laughs> right. to that principal, and I would just be like, oh, how you know. <laughs> That, that just yeah. <laughs> beats you down, you know, even more. Yeah, that's the that's the worst thing about And I'm, I mean, I, I'm an administrator now and I, I run into these moments where you have like disciplinary issues you're supposed to take care of, but you really enjoy the student in front of you. Right. And the student is, of course, very wise to bring his very best personality <laughs> to the right. <laughs> to the highest authority in the school. Right. So, yeah, I. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so I had a uh, lot of lot of things working against me that yeah, <laughs> that yeah, first you, year. you were in a tough spot. Uh, but what do you think you uh, over time? How do you think your persona evolved? Yeah, like I think it evolved into another persona that that is much more positive, much more productive, but at the same time has its its own pitfalls, which you know I think is also what we want to get to, you know, about about these personas. But I would say I became more of what we have in the list of uh, the guru, right? Because as I settled into my own personality and would present, you know, myself as I am to the students, naturally I I approach a lot of things in philosophical ways, like examining the underlying principles and assumptions and questioning those. And so my my style of approaching content was was typically that way. And students began to see me as as someone like that who can look at things from a deeper point of view, right? Or look at things from a, a, a way in a way that others aren't. And so I would have students start you know, making comments like, uh, Mr. Ali, in your class, we didn't just learn about English, we learned about life, (laughs) (laughs) like things like that. And, you know, which is good. It's a very nice thing to hear. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah. But at the same time, it it kind of makes you feel like, you know, it, it can push you in this direction where you feel like your job as the teacher is to help these students understand what life really is, right? Like you're, you're somehow yeah. revealing reality to them, which right. 
gets and in the way of, the of your actual job. Yeah, you have the answers. Yeah, um, yeah. They should That's come to the you. That's the most dangerous part of it is that right. they, they go from not seeing you as a model for how to think, but they see you as the guy with all the answers and there's no exactly. reason to think. Right, right. And, and it's just natural psychologically that you start wanting to meet that expectation, right? Right. Because if people come to you for something that you can see is, is something that they like and it's positive for them and also makes you look good, then, yeah, there's a natural tendency to start giving that to them, <laughs> you know, right. giving them that, that thing that they want. And But now when I look back on myself, and this was, yeah, all, like eight years ago, right, like the when I when I left that school, I, and I think of that of myself at that time and how misguided <laughs> I was in many ways compared to my present self, you know, how many things I've learned since then. And I just cringe. I just have to cringe at the idea that I was some sort of guru, you know, uh, or some kind of sage. And it also just, you know, when we talk about the importance of the students determining their own path in their learning and in their development and pursuing things based on their curiosity and interest and things like that, it's very possible and it happens that someone they see as a guru or a sage can actually become an obstacle to that. Right. Because like you said, they just go to the, you know, they go there for the answers. Right. Exactly. What about you? Yeah. What What did your persona develop into? <laughs> I think you know what my persona evolved into. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we have on this list uh, cult leader. And <laughs> right. I think I have to embrace the fact that that's kind of what happened. Uh, what positioned me to becoming a cult leader was that I, for a few years, I was set up to have all of the GT students for all three years. Mm-hmm. So right when I started, there was a mixture of GT and non-GT classes and and when I finished but there was I guess maybe maybe it was maybe I think it was just three years where this happened but there was a grade that was a 10th grade class you know which was the first year of high school yeah. and I had them 10th 11th and 12th grade right so I had this rather large group of students that were pretty close and had been pulled out for their GT their gifted and talented curriculum for for many years and and they right. had they adopt a certain attitude when mm-hmm. when they've had that kind of treatment. And one of the things that I think happens when you're a teacher of these students who have this sense that they are very special learners is you either have to, well, it feels, it feels like an either or. I, I don't, I don't think of this anymore, but it feels mm-hmm. like an either or of you either have to go guru and really impress them <laughs> with your right. content knowledge and your ability to think. Or, or you have to empower them, or at least right. make them feel empowered. Right. And so I, I was more along the lines of you guys seem pretty sharp. Uh, you have your own dynamic already going here. It's been going for years, and you know what? I just want to give y'all some, you know, some leeway. Yeah. And that, of course, started in the classroom, but it over time, it somehow spread elsewhere in the school. And I don't mean to say like it was a, a school-wide phenomenon, but you would you would get these, I don't know, I, where do you think it most like presented itself outside of the classroom, John? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just some ways that I would see it manifest itself when I, when I think back on it now is that, well, this was before social media had not developed into what it is today, right? And, and today when we look at social media, one of the main features of it are memes. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I would say that during that time, I witnessed some things that I would call memes. Right. But, you know, in the actual physical environment of the school, not in social media. For example, once I, w- I came into your, well, first of all, when I would come to your classroom, <laughs> 
it was always it felt like you know like the gathering place this after school. you know for students yeah after the day it ended and and the students just loved hanging out there in your space right in your classroom and they seemed like so happy and and like so comfortable and i think you know i could tell they just wanted to be where you were right like they loved that space to pick a really salient example, once I came into your classroom and one of the students, like an artistic student, had uh, drawn on the board with chalk, like a you know rendering of of the famous statue. I think it's the Thinker. Is that is that yeah. correct? Where the guy he, he has his he has his hand resting on his on his his hand, his fist, and you know his elbow like on his on his leg, I guess. And it was like a version of that, <laughs> except I now this is just might be my imagination filling in the memory, but I think they did a good job of of putting your face on it. <laughs> yeah, it's probably more your memory. But, there, but at yeah, least your glasses. You had, you had some distinct, distinctive, sh- distinctively shaped glasses that you wore right. at that time. So I, I think they, it was clearly supposed to be you. Right. And um, I think it said, you know, and they called you Dal. So it said, you know, shortening of your last name right. uh, to Dal. And, and I was just struck by that because, like, I could not imagine, like, <laughs> for any other teacher, the students being so inspired, you know, by your personality to, you know, and this, this wasn't the only example of something like that. This is something that, you know, throughout the year, there would be examples of this. And, um, yeah, just the way, yeah, they just had this affection well, for you. And, and, yeah. and I think what, what also happened is, is I was, here, here's what I saw, which was, became problematic to, to other students outside of the classroom. Cause it, one thing it being in contained in the classroom, okay, you might feel like this, this person's giving them a comfortable space, but I was also a creative writing club sponsor and I was the student council sponsor. And, yeah. and what happened is when this group, probably when they became juniors, they started started joining these things that I was doing and the, the, the school population was 16 or 1800 big population. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so the student council, the creative writing club was supposed to pull from that entire population, but right. they would come in with such personality. They would join these groups because I was the sponsor and they would come in with such personality that by the time, you know, the end of their senior year, the group was effectively dominated by these students who otherwise I think had no interest and <laughs> right. in these in these clubs. I mean, had I been right. yeah, had I been sponsor of, of cooking club, I think the same thing would have happened. But <laughs> right, right. And and so where I start to feel like I, I don't really look back on it and cringe. I think there was a lot of things that are set up in a public school that yes, it's partly my responsibility to to monitor and feed back to the students some ways that they're responding yeah. that might not be good. But I right. think there's so much built into how a public school operates that it was really hard to see all that. What I just saw was um, having great success and a lot of support from the students. Right, right. Yeah, and it's a really positive thing. So uh, it's 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 sort of double-sided. And, and I think all of these personas that we're talking about have that, that characteristic. There's a reason why these personas form and, and establish themselves for us is because we see benefits and good things in them. But at the same time, there's a, you know, a sort of darker side <laughs> to it. And I think that based on, you know, the conversations that we've been having, the darker side to it has to do with how it replaces the the independence of the individual. You know, we've talked about how the individual student and the young person and, and human being in general needs to be able to go on his path and that his development depends a lot on his following those interests and needs that he, that he or she has in a self-determined determined kind of way and that the teacher should be someone who's there supporting and helping and coming along. But when the teacher becomes the path, right. for example, if we could put it that right. way, then 
this maybe leads to a lot of good times, <laughs> right? You know, and and it replaces the the environment of the classroom, which would otherwise be kind of boring and unengaging and uninteresting for the student, and sometimes even oppressive in some ways. It replaces that, but it doesn't replace it with with the best thing. It replaces it with with something that's a little better than what would have been there. Yeah, if I do think about the allegory, I think the allegory in terms of the the child's on a path or the students on a path i think that's really uh, the right way to see where the the problems of each one of these uh, personas is allowing yourself to become to become the path uh, that's how i'll say it now uh, that puts ultimate responsibility on you for the entire <laughs> like for, for <laughs> right. the entire time that the that the student is just following you as a as a as a teacher like that puts a lot of responsibility and and you have to own that so, right. uh, and I don't think that that's how a child's path should really be is, is just, you know, following right. one person. Um, and I'm exaggerating right. now. I, I, I don't want it to feel like I was ready to build a compound and, <laughs> or, or that they were ready to <laughs> right. build a compound or something, but, uh, right. but yeah, within the school confines, uh, it, it does, it can get to a level where their path is, I think, uh, compromised. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Of course, like these personas, the way we're talking about them is, is definitely within the limits of what's appropriate at a school. Right. So we're not talking about going beyond those kinds of limits, but yeah, in that space of what a school environment allows for the relationship between the teacher and the students to become these, these personas take shape there. Right. Yeah. Like you being the, the performer in the clown, all of these also assume that the teacher is doing their basic function and job, <laughs> right? Which is to, you know, uh, manage the classroom, supervise the students, deliver some curriculum and content. Well, and we should we should also point out that like students want these kinds of personas, evidenced by the fact that these teachers, teachers who adopt these personas, tend to be celebrated. Right. And so there's a there's a really important thing to do there, which is to be the person the student needs the adult to be, but to realize where the limitation is. And I think something that we've, you know, a conclusion that we've been kind of moving towards seems to be a, a better and better conclusion as, as we discuss these things is that the de-emphasizing of the, the teacher is typically the best thing that can happen if it happens in a way where that role that the teacher has been playing as the motivator, as the inspirer, as the standard of proper behavior, if that, to whatever extent that can be replaced by the students themselves and that the students themselves take on those responsibilities and, and manifest those those energies is better, basically, right? And, and these uh, these personas, they all lean more towards the, the teacher being the most important factor, right? The most important active factor and the, the students being, you know, going more in the passive direction. Right. Yeah. And in order to do that, we need to discuss the teacher role as I guess we need to state it as clearly as we can, because I think if a teacher right. goes into the classroom with a clear idea of what his role is or her role is, then that's the best opportunity to quickly develop good relationships with the students. Right, right. If we're right about this. <laughs> yeah, if we're right about this. So we're developing a theory We're here, developing you know, a and, theory. And, yeah. yeah. And of course, we're comparing, we're looking at our own experiences and using this theory as a way of, of evaluating those and understanding those and seeing how well it matches up. And of course, that's what we hope that our listeners do as well, which is to, you know, engage actively in this process of of trying to understand and develop a, a theory, so to speak, or, or a set of concepts 
and principles that we can actually use to basically be able to approach the the issues and problems of, of education. So we've been talking about these two forces that a lot of times are in conflict or there's a tension between them in in education, right? Which we're, there's the sort of natural learning path of the student, which is based on things that they're interested in. And we talked a lot about this in the in previous discussions. And then on the other hand, there's the expectations and concerns that the group has. Both of these are primary reasons for the, the founding of the educational institution. Because on the one hand, the purpose of that institution is to help the individual in his development. And on the other hand, it's also to bring to bear the types of training and skills and knowledge that are recognized from the group as being necessary and valuable for, for the society. So in this way, we can see the teacher as, on the one hand, being the agent of those group concerns. The teacher is the one who needs to implement the curriculum, to give the lessons, to set a certain standard of behavior and, and attitude. But also the teacher is the, the only one who's in the position of making sure that those group expectations and concerns don't overwhelm the individual and replace his self-determination. Right. Right. So this is a very difficult task uh, for the teacher. And I, and I think that if we look at the choices that, th- that the teacher faces and through this lens, then we can more clearly understand how to resolve these con- conflicts and get the best result, you know, and the best educational opportunity for, for the student. But also these these are what we call could call legitimate forces at work in education. But then, like we've kind of alluded to here, there are some other forces that are illegitimate. One being, you know, like we've, we've kind of talked about is that these personas, a lot of times they can feed the ego of the teacher. Right. Right. And the, the teacher's ego is not a force. <laughs> it's not something that that's like a legitimate yeah. factor, <laughs> you know, in, in education. Right. To the extent that the teacher's ego is involved and, and decisions are being made to feed the teacher's ego is probably, you know, we can say to the extent to which things are going wrong. Agreed. It's not always easy to de- to detect either because it can be a situation sort of like what I was describing where things seem like everything's going great. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if the teacher identifies himself or herself as the vehicle of learning and the vehicle of education, then you can see very easily how when when the teacher's ego starts being fed, this seems like learning is being fed, right? Education is, is flourishing. I think that's one of the biggest dangers of, of the teacher becoming central right. to the process. Even when teachers aren't identified as the vehicle for learning, almost always the school is identified as the vehicle for learning. Right, right, right. Yeah, the teacher can just be the individual embodiment of the, yeah, the larger educational institution like the school. And I think the the version of, you know, the institution can have its own ego, right? Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, unfortunately, that can become a major influence over what happens in the institution and in the classroom and even down to the level of to the student, to the child, to the individual child. Now, with the institution, I think it most it typically manifests itself as the reputation of the institution, but also the the survival of the institution. Yeah. Right. That the insti- the the school puts into practice certain things, a certain way of doing things, and that in itself becomes uh, develops an, a momentum. Right. That that there's often a feeling like this this itself needs to be maintained. Right. And we're certainly. <laughs> I mean, we can point out that we see this now in really obvious ways uh, presently, but you see it, I, I should clarify, you see it now in really obvious ways because we're about to go back into the school year for 2020 uh, during the yeah. during the COVID and, and schools are all over the place going back into session. Right. Uh, it seems purely for survival uh, in some cases. Right, right. Is it what's best for the students? You know, wh- what's the student's path? I mean, these are... 
these are questions that all can be raised at any time. Like, what what is the student's path? And the student's path isn't like a completely individual choice either. Right. It is up to the teacher to help students realize that. Like, you have interests and you can pursue those interests, but there's going to be natural things obstacles that get in your way and they can either they can either be overcome or they might not be overcome. Right. And there might be paths around it that other people have found and teachers can be part of helping students realize that, but there might be obstacles that are just that are just major deterrents. Right, right. And the student has to decide what to do about that. Right. And that can't be on the uh, on the teacher at that point. Right. You could say that the teacher's role is to to help the, the child see the context in which their individual decisions need to be made. Right, right. And the and then the teacher and so I'm just sort of like getting at a more granular level on this of what it means to be this mediator between the the individual growth and the societal expectations. And then on the other side of things, the teacher is of course trying to help make sure that the student along his path recognizes the legitimate societal concerns right. and communicates those. But there has to be a point where the teacher can understand that those concerns, those legitimate societal concerns, at the point where they start to exert so much influence over the, the student that the student is no longer feels that he can choose a path, then I think the teacher is has to see that as as giving too much weight, too much weight to the societal expectations. Right. And that's going to be different for every single child. Yeah. Some children will be happy to adopt the societal expectations and continue on their learning path because there's not much of a tension between the two. Right. I would say most students, at least in my experience, most students, that has to be carefully managed so that any sort of intrinsic appreciation for learning isn't quashed. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good, that from individual to individual, these things are going to vary a lot. And and that's also a cautionary note for teachers is that we can't become fixated on one idea, for example, that all students need to be liberated from the expectations of society, right? And then think that that's, if we apply that universally, that that's going to yield good results, right? Because it's not the case. There might be some students who are, are being oppressed and their individual needs and interests are being crushed by the expectations of the group. And and in that case, then the right approach might be to encourage them to sort of liberate themselves from that. But there could be other cases where, like you said, where there's a harmony between the two and there's no need to, you know, for instance, convince a student just because your parents, you know, want you to do that doesn't mean you have to. But if there's no conflict, right, then then it's kind of it's self-serving. I would say the harmony, the way we describe the harmony between a student's individual choices and societal expectations as we say, oh, that's a good student. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's a good one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that, I mean, and I, so many of us, I, I'm, I have done this within the last year. I say, oh, such a good student. Right. Um, right. And, and all I'm really saying there is, is that there's not there's not too much tension. Uh, there's, <laughs> right. I don't have to do too much work. <laughs> right, right. They're <laughs> to, not. A, yeah, they don't to get this. They're not yeah. causing trouble, basically. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And yeah, that's that's a really good point because you know then the other type of student who's seen as causing trouble, you know, seen as what's the word incorrigible or irredeemably rebellious. That student, you know, in a lot of cases, it might just be that no one has helped that student to balance these things. It may be that someone needs to help to create a space for that student to to express their individuality and, and their individual concerns, but also to 
to attenuate whatever the societal expectations are concerned to a certain level. And this is a, you know, it's not something just where the, te- the teacher's place to make that judgment. Of course, this is, the teacher needs to understand the, all the context, the cultural and societal context of that. But, but the teacher, the, 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 the fact is that the teacher is, is the one who's there to do that, right? It's the one who's, who, this, whatever this decision-making would be, it's implemented through the teacher to a really large extent. And all this talk, John, has, has brought to my mind sort of a nightmare scenario for me as a teacher, which is an individualized educational plan for every single student, <laughs> right. which maybe we'll touch on later. But I, I have this really strong feeling that a lot of the paperwork that we do is pretty worthless. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I don't, I'm definitely not going to walk away from that. I, I, I do walk away from this thinking, well, Coming into this next year, I, I do need to be more mindful of the role I'm playing uh, between the, the as a mediator between the, the individual and society. But there's no way I'm going to write down an IEP right. for each one of right. these kids. Right. Uh, and so, and I, I started to think about it, and I realized I don't have the depth of thought presently to explore this. But maybe in a future episode, we can look at some of the challenges. Like when we identify things like this, it sounds like we're saying, "Well, we got to do a lot more work." But really, I think what we need to do is make a more focused effort remembering why we are teaching. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and to put it in the kind of trendy parlance, I don't know, <laughs> to, to put it in, 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 in a way that that's a common phrase today, we could say that it, it's about a certain degree of mindfulness right. about what's going on and what our role in that is. Not, not, it's not a question of paperwork, <laughs> right, and more documentation and things like that, but to be, for us to be aware of these things as we do our jobs, as we do the work, you know, do our work as teachers and educators. And if as a group, if collectively people are mindful of these things, then yeah, it would really make it unnecessary to document them and, and make records because all of that has to do with the accountability of the issue, right? right? Like making sure that you're proving that you're doing what you're what you're supposed to be doing, uh, so that when someone else comes and questions that, <laughs> you know, you have the you have the the documentation. But yeah, that's a, that's an, another point that's interesting. I can see definitely how you know you could a person could come away from this discussion thinking that because that seems to be the proper way to implement new understandings or you know insights into into students. Yeah, that's the current system response right. to such thinking as this. All right, so that gives us a lot of material for for some future conversations, Sean. So we want to thank our listeners for joining us and we look forward to the next discussion that we'll have. So thanks, Sean, for joining me again. All right. Thanks, John.